1 Timothy 5, 3 through 8. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Galatians 6, 9 through 10. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 14. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Or do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas? and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. Who serves the soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this, right? But we endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. All right, good morning. Everybody doing all right this morning? I want to add my own support to Mark's announcement about the launch of our Celebrate Recovery ministry. Maybe as Mark was giving that announcement, the, there was just that little turn in your heart or your stomach where you felt like, that, I, that should, I should go to that. That's for me. But there was that nervousness that Mark was talking about, about putting yourself out there. And you know, maybe there's some, something you've been battling that no one else knows about. And to show up at Celebrate Recovery means you're going to have to out that. 
I mean, just encourage you to follow where the Spirit of God is prompting you and pushing you. Uh, the Lord is not calling you into that space to humiliate you, but to bring healing and joy to your life. And I don't know if you saw it in the announcement either. This is just a little side benefit, but the Celebrate Recovery group is going to be meeting in my study. So if you want to see what my study looks like, you can join Celebrate Recovery <laughs> for that. I mention that only because we put it in my study because we don't know how large the group is going to be. My study, obviously, it can't hold a huge group. And uh, my prayer has been that that Celebrate Recovery would quickly exceed the capacities of my study uh, and would meet the needs of those here who need it. So I encourage you uh, to join in on that. All right, so we're digging into our sermon series this morning, and Money We Trust, Putting Our Faith Where It Belongs. Week one, we answered the question, what shouldn't I live for or what shouldn't I depend upon? The answer was money. Then week two, what should I live for? The answer, God's righteousness and his kingdom. Week three, last week, answered the question, how much should I give? We should give our whole lives to God. We saw last week. We give the whole pie, as it were, to God. We surrender all of our lives to God. And then from there, we give in accordance with how he directs, right? So we don't just give him one slice of the pie. We give him the whole pie, and we give in accordance with how he directs. This week then leads us to the natural follow-up question to that. We're going to surrender our whole lives to God, and all of it, right? All of our finances to God. It takes us to the natural follow-up question, where should I give? Where should we give our money? The money that we feel like the Lord is kind of compelling us to give, the amount that he's compelling us to give. Each of us have our own relationship with the Lord. He might ask you to give more than me or me to give more than you. That's between you and the Lord. But but where should we give our money? Can we go to the scriptures to provide any direction for us about giving priorities? So last week, we looked at a number of passages of scripture to help get a sense of the question of the answer of how much we should give. This week, we're going to look at a series number of passages. Again, four different passages that have already been read for us. And we're going to use these four passages to elucidate Three giving priorities. So two of the scriptures will come together for one particular giving priority, but three giving priorities that we find in scripture. The Bible gives us quite a bit of room uh, to personally discern through the Spirit's leading in our lives how much we should give, but we get more clear direction on the question, where should I give? Right? God has priorities in this world. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, there are certain things that God prioritizes in this world, and we want our giving to reflect those priorities. And as we're going to see from these texts that have already been read for, for us, and really throughout the whole of the New Testament, there's a descending hierarchy of needs and priorities that we find in the New Testament. And so we want to know that descending order of needs so that we can give in accordance with that. So we're going to start by looking at the most important giving priority, and then we're going to work our way down uh, to the second and to the third. should say, at the, and then I'm going to close out our sermon with some pastoral advice about how I think we can apply these giving priorities in our lives. I should say here at the front end that the sermon is going to probably be a bit more informational than inspirational. So I apologize for that, but sometimes there's just some nuts and bolts of the Christian life that we need to know and understand, and that's what I want this to be. So um, 
Hopefully, you will find something in here that is useful to you as you are contemplating where uh, your money should go. All right. First giving priority, we're going to be uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let me just say, I think it will be helpful for you to follow along uh, as we hit each of these passages. If you're new to church or new to the Bible and you don't know where any of these books are in the Bible, that's totally fine. If you go to the be- very beginning of your Bible, you're going to find an index. You can find the page number there. Or if you've got it on the phone, you can just uh, look it up that way. But 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 8, the first giving priority, the first giving priority is the needs of your biological family the needs of your biological family. Let me explain as best as I can what I think is going on here in this passage in 1 Timothy and then draw out the implications more broadly for what it means about our giving priorities. In 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy with instructions about how to care, <clears throat> excuse me, about how to care for the widows at the church in Ephesus. So Timothy is one of the primary leaders at the church in Ephesus, and apparently there's some questions about how to care for the widows there. So Paul, in dialogue with Timothy, uh, Paul mentored Timothy. Paul sends Timothy some instructions about how to care for the widows there in Ephesus. And notice that he says there in verse 5-3, honor widows who are truly widows. He uses this word honor which we kind of think of as like show respect to. But in, uh, in that day, if you honored someone, it had with it the uh, implication of material and financial care. So when Paul says to honor the widows, he's referring to the honoring that comes through financial care. Caring for widows and orphans is a big deal all throughout the scriptures. So all the way back into the Old Testament law and then carry that through up into the New Testament, you write might remember in Acts chapter 6, the church really was just uh, starting with the gift of the Holy Spirit coming down at Pentecost. There was a rather large group that had formed. And one of the first things we see in Acts chapter 6 is that there was an immediate concern to care for the widows among them. And so they formed uh, kind of the beginnings of what I think we see as the diaconate or a benevolence committee, as it were, to make sure that the widows were being taken care of. And so we see that already in Acts 6. And that carried on then as the church expanded throughout the Roman Empire and to other parts of the world, this concern for caring for widows. So apparently, in the church in in Ephesus, there's a list that was kept about who qualified, which widows qualified for care. Perhaps the list was getting a bit large and unwieldy. Perhaps it was taxing the limits of the young church in Ephesus, and they were running out of capacities. We're not exactly sure what the situation was or why Paul uh, uh, chose to address it. But Paul here is giving some guidance about which widows should be on the list. We want to understand like his logic for our giving priorities. This is analogous to how we here at Calvary distribute benevolence care. So you may, if you've been around Calvary, you know that we have a, a benevolence team in place, and we take a benevolence offering uh, once a month, the first uh, Sunday of the month. That money is pooled together, and then as people in our congregation have needs, then they can come uh, to the benevolence team, and uh, we are able to help people meet their needs. So it's kind of our way of, of enacting what Paul is doing here. And the benevolence team has guidelines that help determine who's eligible to receive care. 
So if you um, want the new 100-inch 5K uh, high-def TV, don't come to the benevolence team and ask for a care. Uh, so we have certain guidelines that uh, provide some instructions to the benevolence team about who's eligible for care and how uh, they can receive it. So what we're reading here in 1 Timothy 5 is very similar. This is Paul's instructions about the proper benevolence guidelines for the distribution of care to the widows in the church there in Ephesus. Now, we're not going to go into all the details of what Paul says. I want to just focus on one in particular. But the basic gist of what Paul wants to say is that the care should only go to the widows who are truly widows. It's an expression that he uses in 5.3. He uses it again in 5.5 and then 5.16. Truly widows. What he means by this term, truly widows, he doesn't mean like literally a widow. So if you are literally a widow and you have lost your husband, you automatically go on the list. That appears to be what was happening. Paul says, no, no, that doesn't, it's not how it works. Only those who are truly widows, only those who are really in a position of need. I want to draw attention to Paul's first criteria that qualifies a widow to be on the benevolence list in Ephesus. Look at 5.4. Well, he says in 5.3, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, then let them, meaning the widow, first learn to show kindness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, and then he qualifies it, left all alone. Right, so the one who is truly a widow isn't someone who is bereft of family, but someone who is truly a widow is one who is left all alone, who has no family to take care of her. The clear idea here is that the church shouldn't be distributing benevolence help to widows who can just as easily receive it from their family. So Paul wants Timothy to say, okay, listen, if there's... Some widows in your church who need some help, they should first look to their own families. And if their families can care for them, that's the place where they should go. But the widow who is truly alone, that's the one that you need to help. Now we get to the crux of why I've brought it to this passage here. Look in 5.8. He says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are, those are heavy words. And if you're not caring for the members of your household, Paul is saying, that's the equivalent of denying the faith, and you're actually worse than an unbeliever. To neglect the very real needs of your relatives, and this, most especially the members of your own household, it's contradictory to the very direction of the gospel. Paul's point, God's point, I think for us, is that our giving priorities, our philanthropy, should begin in our own household. We have an obligation to care for our own families. Jesus makes this point in Mark 7. The Pharisees of his day were very scrupulous about following all of God's giving laws. And so they prioritized their giving unto the Lord. Right? And they would give their money to the temple, to the tabernacles. 
And Jesus says, you know, woe to you, Pharisees. You give your money to the Lord, but you neglect to care for your aging parents. And so he rebukes them for giving to the temple and to the tabernacle and to the, the whole sacrificial system, but not caring for the parents. You have an obligation to care for your parents, Jesus is saying. Same principle here Paul is picking up on, and he's working it out uh, in the church in Ephesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we have an obligation to indulge every desire of our spouse and our children. Buying your kid a car or a new prom dress or paying their way to Yale doesn't fall into this category, right? So when we talk about caring for the members of our household, right, our own relatives, what Paul has in mind is not supplying all of their whims and fancies and wants, but rather caring for their basic needs. Paul's concern here is that if he's saying to, to the folks there in Ephesus and then to us, if you are a person of means, individuals from your family shouldn't have to come to the church for benevolence help to have their basic needs met. Now, I fully understand how complicated these things can be. I had someone come up, a couple come up afterwards uh, between the, uh, the services and ask some questions. And I, these are complicating things with our extended family or uh, with parents and children and all of that. Sometimes being a family member, uh, sometimes helping a family member meet their basic needs isn't actually helping them, but enabling them. And so I, I, I grant that these are complicated issues. I think that can be especially true with children, right? And we're, sometimes we need the best way we can help our children launch out into the world is by not helping them, right? To get them out of the nest or to get them out of the basement and off the Xbox and out into the real world, you know, whatever it might be, right? And I get there are a lot of mitigating circumstances that require wisdom and discernment and prayer with this, even tough love. But the overall principle still stands. In your giving, your first giving priority, your first order of philanthropy should look first to the legitimate needs, not the wants, but the legitimate needs of your own family and relatives. Okay, this is not an excuse for slothful Christians to neglect their own responsibilities and financial obligations and simply presume upon the rich relative. There are plenty of scriptures against presumption and irresponsibility, so this is not an excuse for that, right? And this is why our own benevolence policy, as a first matter of course, has guidelines that try to determine who's eligible. And in those guidelines, we direct people to seek help first and foremost from their family, in keeping with this principle here, before we offer the church's money. But as we think about this first giving priority, it's important to remember that this giving priority, in ways that the other two giving priorities we're going to look at in a second, comes with a warning that the others don't. To neglect your family is to deny the faith. Now, we're not going to find to neglect your local church is to deny the faith. We're not going to see it that strong in the other passage, but this one is, and that's why I rank it right up at the very top. I think the scripture ranks it at the top as well. 
No other giving instruction in the New Testament carries this strong of a warning. To fail in this giving responsibility is to, to deny the faith. So our first giving obligation, our first giving priority is toward our biological family, our relatives, and most especially the members of our own household. All right, that's giving priority number one. Giving priority number two, our second giving priority. The first giving priority goes to our biological family. The second giving priority goes to our spiritual family or our church family. So Galatians 6 is the passage we're going to look at here briefly on this. We're going to actually look at two passages, kind of a 2A and a 2B, as it were, for this second giving priority. What pulls them together is that they're both inward to the Christian community, as we'll see. So Galatians 6, once again, Paul is offering instructions about uh, giving, this time to the church in Galatia. The passage is a bit more straightforward. In verse 9, Paul is encouraging the Christians there in Galatia to not grow weary in doing good, but to persevere uh, in good works. And then in verse 10, he uh, says this. Look in verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And then look what he says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we should do good to everybody. Like our philanthropy should be broad and should extend out into the whole world. But most especially, Paul says, to those who are of the household of faith. This doing good idea goes beyond just financial obligations. So Paul isn't just saying, you know, just finances. But he's saying it includes good deeds and acts of charity and service and all that. But it includes certainly finances. And the thing I want to note here is that Paul makes a distinction between general charity giving, which goes to all people, and the charity that we extend to those who are part of the Christian community, or as Paul phrases it, part of the household of faith. So Paul is saying, give broadly to all people, but have a particular eye for your brothers and sisters in Christ. The logic here is very similar to what we just saw in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Just as our biological brothers and sisters should not have to go outside the biological family in order to receive care, in the same way, our spiritual brothers and sisters should not have to go outside of the spiritual family in order to receive care for their basic needs. Once again, this is why we take up a benevolence offering the first Sunday of every month. This is our way of carrying out this instruction. It's not always easy for the benevolence team to figure out how much to give and when the real needs are, their needs are real and should be met. But we want to do our part in fulfilling the legitimate or the help towards the legitimate needs of our brothers and sisters here in this community. So, 2A, second priority, take care of the needs of your biological family and then take care of the needs of your spiritual family. All right, that's the second given priority. But now 2B, there's more here on the spiritual family and kind of life together as a church. And we're going to move over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. I encourage you to turn there. This is a longer passage. I'm going to do my best to summarize it quickly for us. Uh, here in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and the church in Corinth was a church that he had been instrumental in helping start, and he had done a fair amount of work there uh, for a number of months, and had since moved on, but was still 
in a pen pal relationship of sorts with the church in Corinth. And so he was writing uh, back to them. And he had helped start the church. Uh, and his apostleship, though, was in some doubt with some in the Corinthian church. Part of the reason that it was in doubt was because, he tells us here, he had never asked the Corinthians to uh, compensate him financially. He had worked for, among them for free. And just like in our day, when we get things for free, we can tend to value them a little bit less. It was the same in Paul's day. And he had worked among them for free in the time that he had been there, paying his own way with his side hustle as a tent maker. And so he and his traveling companions had done that. And instead of that leading to appreciation and respect, it actually, among some of them, caused them to take him for granted and to respect him less. And so Paul is now going to, here in this passage, justify his logic in not taking money from the church in Corinth when he worked among them. But as he's doing it, he doesn't want to imply that no one should take money as a minister or worker of the gospel. So watch how he kind of threads this needle. He begins uh, making this point, really, in verse 8. I mean, he's working towards it all, but I want to pick his logic up here in verse 8, 8 through 14, where we'll focus uh, particularly. But he notes that even in the secular world, uh, if you plant a vineyard, you get to eat from its fruit. If you tend to flock, you know, you get uh, some of the milk, right? But then it's not just kind of the way that it works in the secular world, but he's saying even the law of God kind of points us in this direction. So look what he says in verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak certainly for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So Paul's saying, I had a right. I had a right to receive financial compensation from you for the work that I was doing spiritually among you. Nevertheless, continuing in verse 12, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Then he goes back to affirming that this was a right he had. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? And here's verse 14, kind of sums up the point I want to draw from this passage. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul is saying here to the church in Corinth, and then our application obviously applying in our context, he's saying, you're responsible, Corinthians, for compensating your spiritual leaders who labor among you on your behalf. Just because I didn't take you up on it doesn't mean that that wasn't your responsibility. Now, not every ministry situation requires a full-time vocational worker. In Paul's context, he was able to go because of his particular skill set that he had. He was able to compensate himself through the team that he brought with him. 
and no doubt some of his team members labored uh, in the tent-making business as well, freeing him up to be able to get after uh, the gospel proclamation and the teaching, but he himself did it as well. Not every ministry situation requires a full-time vocational worker because either maybe the worker themselves has a, another source of income or because the ministry itself is small enough, it doesn't require a full-time worker, but could be handled by a volunteer. But in most cases, certainly in our case, it's customary and expected in the New Testament and just in life in general. I mean, this is true of how the world works, right? If I take my car to the mechanic, they're going to fix you know, my radiator, then there's an expectation that I'm going to compensate them for the labor that they've performed on my behalf. Right? This is just how the world works, and it works the same way in the church, Paul is saying. Most cases, if you want someone or some bodies to labor on your behalf in a vocational capacity, whether full-time or part-time, the resources for that should come from those who receive the benefit. So this is why I give my tithe uh, in the offering every week when the plate comes around. Actually, I don't put it in the plate. I give online. But if you're ever watching me and wondering, why does Pastor Gerald never put anything in the plate? It's not because I don't put anything in the plate. It's because I give it <laughs> online. But in any case, this is why I give, right? I don't give to pay myself, right? I give because Pastor John and Caroline take care of the youth ministries, which take care of my kids. And because Carolyn Lundgren works hard on the communications and the announcements that are beneficial for all of us, that Pastor Johnny pastors me as much as I pastor him. And so I receive benefit from this congregation. And so when I write my check and I put it in the offering each week, it's because I'm benefiting from the care and the concern that is extended to me as well. And so I want to honor this principle just as much, I think, as Paul is calling all of us to honor this principle. The general principle, I think, that Paul is offering here extends beyond just ministry staff or employees or Christian workers of the gospel. I think the basic principle here is that if we collectively, individually, receive a benefit from being a part of this congregation, then it's incumbent upon us as members of this congregation to make sure that the needs of this congregation and all the kind of infrastructure stuff that makes this ministry work are being met. This building, the ministries, the missionaries that we send out, as we even heard from the Sallies today, the heat and the, the AC in the summer, the electricity, the roof that we're going to have to repair. Hopefully you've heard about that, right? The roof overheads. All of these things cost money. We're not part of a denomination. We don't have some head office in Toledo that sends us a check every month to cover it. Everything that needs to be taken care of to make us be able to function as a congregation comes out of our own pockets, right? We're the ones that supply the needs for that. And Paul's basic point is simply... If you derive a spiritual benefit from your church, then help support its financial needs. And the way that we see that pattern working out throughout the New Testament is that people would frequently come. We saw this even in last week's passage. People would frequently come, and they would bring the money, and they would put it at the feet, as it were, of the leaders. So rather than it's like having a congregational meeting, and we're like, OK, who's going to cover the electricity bill this month? And who's going to cover the heating bill? And who will cover you know, the North X uh, repair and the door? You know, we just bring our money together, 
put it into a clump, as it were, and then we entrust our leaders to figure out how to manage the finances in a way that keep the ministry moving in a good direction and bearing gospel fruit. So the first giving priority is to your biological family. Got to start there. Got to make sure that that house is in order. Second giving priority is to your spiritual family, namely your Christian brothers and sisters, and then beyond that, your spiritual leaders, and then beyond that, just all of the needs that attend to your own local congregation. And then the third giving priority found in James chapter 1, really kind of dovetailing or pulling this together with what we saw already in Galatians chapter 6. James chapter 1, uh, verse 27, James writes this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we want to know about how, like, what is it that God prioritizes in kind of these hierarchy of needs, right? And we saw from Galatians 6 already that we we start with our biological family. We saw that. Then Galatians 6, we start with the spiritual family. And then from there, we move out into the world. James is following that along that same basic premise. But I want to draw attention to this passage because he, he says, in particular, as your care extends out into the world, widows and orphans, in other words, those who are in real positions of vulnerability, who can't fend for themselves very easily. And in Paul's day, widows and orphans didn't have a lot of recourse or options to fend for themselves if someone wasn't coming alongside them and serving as a patron for them. So the principle here, I would, be, would say, is that as we move out into the world in our giving, right, we should keep in mind the very real needs of those in positions of vulnerability. This is not to say that we should never give money to our alma mater when the university sends their annual, for their annual fundraising drive, or the Arts Society, or PBS. But it does mean that widows and orphans, or those who are in positions of need and vulnerability, rank higher in terms of God's giving priorities. So our three giving priorities, first is our biological family, second, our spiritual family, third, kind of the human family, keeping in mind that those in positions of vulnerability where there's needs, not wants, are the thing that God is most concerned about in that. So let me close this out here with giving some pastoral advice about how to kind of navigate all of this in our lives. First thing I would say is let God's giving priorities inform your own giving priorities. That's really been what the burden of this sermon is pressing towards. So we want to surrender our whole lives to God's kingdom and God's righteousness, to seek after God's covenantal commitments, right? We want to mirror God's agenda with our agenda. And so we want to know what God's priorities are as we think about what our giving priorities should be, which is seek to align the agenda of our lives with God's agenda. Now, the giving priorities that we've talked about here, I'm not ranking them in terms of amount, Right? And the New Testament doesn't do that. So it's not as though, okay, I've got $100 to give, and God's priorities are biological family, spiritual family, and then the world. So uh, the uh, biological family gets $51, and then the spiritual family gets you know, $30, and then you're on down, right? It's not that, right? Because it could be that your biological family just doesn't have any needs, that everything is good at that point in your life. 
right? And so you, as you consider your household, not just you and your spouse and your three kids or whatever your household constitutes, but you think about kind of the broader household that you have are connected with relationally in your family, it, that's all good. So maybe there, there doesn't have to be any money given to your, to your biological family. And so you can now move some of the resources that would have gone to your biological family. Now they can be moved over to your spiritual family, to your, to your local church. And it could be the case that in your own local church, there aren't a lot of needs. That's not the case here, I will say to you. Uh, but that could be. I have friends uh, who are pastors, and whether they're pastoring large churches or smaller churches, um, I'm thinking of a few that are pastors smaller churches where they have some particularly wealthy people in their church who have given sufficiently to the church that the budget's taken care of almost with just one check for the whole, for the whole year, right? And so it might be the case that in your giving, as you look at like what the needs are in your local church, you're like, I don't know, I, mean, I could give money to the local church, but that's already being taken care of. The needs that we have as a local church are being taken care of. So now I'm going to move out beyond that into more charitable giving outside in the world, right, or beyond, right? So it's not to say that you have to give a certain amount. I don't know what the amount will be, but it is to say you need to consider these needs having been met and taken care of as you move down your giving priorities. Okay, then keeping with the point that we had made from James chapter 1, second piece of pastoral advice is consider needs over wants. Our culture blurs the lines a lot on needs and wants. And our kids might feel like they need things that really they just want. Or perhaps our aging parents feel like they need things that really they just want. Right? And there's preferences, and it can be tricky to figure all this out. But I would just say get clear in your own life what needs are for yourself. And then that's the sort of thing you want to move towards others in showing mercy and charity and philanthropy. Consider needs over wants. Right? Make sure you have needs lined up. Third piece of pastoral advice, strive to be equitable in sharing the load of your spiritual household. So it's pretty standard common wisdom that uh, 80% of a church's financial commitments and needs are met by 20% of the folks in the church. That's pretty typical. Now, that might be the case because it's just the distribution of wealth realistically within that uh, particular local church. It could be the case, though, that folks that make up the 80% aren't really being fair to the folks that are carrying the whole load that are the 20%. I went out to uh, dinner a couple years ago. Uh, my daughter and I were heading out for like a school function, and there was, a, there was like a daddy-kid dinner optional thing beforehand that some parents had put together. And so I wasn't particularly hungry. It was at a local restaurant here. And so we went, and I felt like I should eat something to be social, so I ordered an appetizer and an Arnold Palmer. I like my Arnold Palmers. Uh, and uh, so there we have, I got my iced tea, and uh, lemonade, and I've got, I forget what I have for an appetizer. And then the bill comes, and I got stuck with like $43 for that bill. And um, that didn't seem equitable to me, <laughs> right? They just kind of took the total bill, divided it up among the eight of us or however many there were that was there. We all had to pay the same amount, right? So some of you, I don't know. You, God knows your financial situation. I don't know your financial situation. It may be that you have a fair amount of money, but it's all being given to legitimate biological family needs, right? You've got a 
nephew who's going through cancer and you're helping out your brother. And so all of your free resources right now are heading to like that medical emergency with your family, right? I don't judge you. No one else should judge you as to whether or not you're contributing to here as your second giving priority, right? But I would say we should not presume upon the people of means here in this congregation to carry the whole load any more than a a family member should presume upon the rich uncle to carry the whole load while they neglect their responsibility. All right, so we want to do our part, each of us, in trying to be equitable in meeting the needs of this congregation. Again, that's ultimately between you and the Lord, and we're not keeping track of that in a way that, I mean, we, you, we keep track of it for your tax purposes, but no one knows that except our accountant who doesn't even come to church here. So that's between you and the Lord, right? But what I would say to you is you should be prayerful about that. Like, what part does God want you to play in the overall need that we have as a congregation and then meeting that need with the way that the Lord is calling you? All right, so uh, fourth piece of pastoral advice, view all philanthropy as unto the Lord. Sometimes we can view our Christian giving or our giving unto the Lord as what we give to the church. And everything else is kind of, uh, I don't know, it's like, just generosity, or it doesn't really count, or we don't even really think about it. It's just we've given our money to God, as it were. And then we talked about this a little bit last week. We've given our money to God, and then we don't have to think about the rest of our money. But if all of our money is money that we've surrendered to the Lord, and we want all of our giving to be directed by God's giving priorities and his spirit in our life, then this means that all that we give is to the Lord. So in that illustration that I just used Perhaps you have a family member who is in a difficult spot because of a medical crisis or some other crisis or a health crisis or whatever the case might be. And so your giving generosity and sacrificially even is going to that family member to help them in the midst of their crisis. That's giving unto the Lord. That is using your money in a way that is consistent with God's call upon your life. And so you don't have to feel bad about giving to your family member as though it doesn't really count in terms of giving to the Lord. Right? If you're giving in obedience to God, then you're giving unto the Lord. So don't think about giving to the Lord as much as giving in obedience to the Lord. And wherever you give your money in obedience to the Lord, that's giving unto the Lord. And then finally, I close with this last piece of pastoral advice, really the theme of this whole sermon series. Stay surrendered to the Lord and trusting in his providential care in your life. Seek after God's kingdom first, his righteousness, his covenantal priorities. Let God's giving priorities drive your life, not just your finances, your whole life, but especially your finances, because where your money is, there your heart's going to be also, Jesus said. So if you want your heart to be consistent with God's heart, then get your money into God's giving priorities because your money will pull you into the place where God is at and God is working. Stay fully surrendered to the Lord. Ultimately, it's between you and the Lord, but what I would say is that as you consider what God, as you're listening for the voice of the Lord to direct your giving, stay mindful of God's promise that he's the one that cares for you. He's the one that supplies you. He's the one that watches over you. And so as you move forward in giving, give in faith that God is behind you, 
that he's giving behind you and filling in the stuff that you're giving away, as it were. He's not calling you to give because he wants to ruin you or lead you into financial destitution or uh, wreck your life, right? He's calling you to give so that you can be a blessing and a conduit through which his goodness comes into the life of others. So give surrendered and give in faith. All right, hopefully there was something in there for you all as uh, you're contemplating your relationship with money and God's call upon your life. We're heading next week to our last week of this short sermon series on finances, answering the question, why should I give? Perhaps the most fundamentally important question of the series, why should I give? What is the motivation that drives our giving? So, Let's close in prayer and ask the Lord to bless uh, this uh, time together in the ways that he wants to in each of our lives. Father, thank you that you call us to give, not because you're somehow in need, or not because you're wringing your hands, but you want our gifts to go through your covenantal priorities so that we can be a part of what it is that you are wanting to do in the world for our own blessing and our own joy. Lord, I pray for each of us here as we contemplate what you're calling us to do. I pray that we would align our hearts more and more with your heart and that we would surrender ourselves fully uh, to you, not just our finances, but certainly not least or less than our finances. God, help us to live surrendered lives to you and to follow where you lead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.